Thank you again, worship team. If you would turn to Revelation chapter 20. We've been working our way slowly through a number of books over the last couple of years, and we're working our way through the book of Revelation, and we're up to chapter 20 today. When our kids were much younger, we used to have a practice of trying to give them a heads up when we were on our way to a special event or a gathering of some kind. We try to talk through things with our kids to say, this is what's going to happen, and this is what you need to be prepared for, and this is what we'd like for you to do, and this is like for what we'd like for you not to do. And, and so it was a way of trying to uh, prepare them for what was coming, and with the heart of wanting them to be successful, and wanting us not to have to discipline them as well. So uh, there was a lot involved there. But it was actually a kindness uh, to give them a heads up and to try to do what we could to help them deal with the situation they were entering. And what we find in Revelation 20 is, I believe, a good illustration of God doing the very same thing for us. He is the perfect father. And what he does in Revelation 20 well, actually, the whole book of Revelation, uh, he's giving us a heads up. He's saying, this is what's coming. And he does that out of a heart of kindness and love so that we can be prepared for what is to come. And so I think it's helpful uh, to read uh, Revelation 20 in light of this because Revelation 20 is both probably the most disputed passage in Revelation, which is saying something because Revelation is probably the most disputed book in the Bible, and Revelation 20 is probably the most disputed um, chapter in the whole book of Revelation. And yet, it goes beyond that to the fact that if you really think about what it's saying, it's a very profound uh, revelation of what lies ahead for all of us. And therefore, it's very, very helpful to know that the God who's given us this is a God who's perfect love, and it's his heart to show mercy, and therefore he's told us what he's told us. So if you would, look with me at Revelation 20. Let's read this chapter. It's not a very long chapter, but Revelation 20 begins in verse 1 and says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was giving, given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison 
and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which are written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of God. As I mentioned, this is probably the most uh, controversial passage among Christians in the book of Revelation. There are several different views of what's going on in this chapter that would be considered orthodox. And so if you don't agree with my view, uh, that's probably okay because there's uh, not uh, a unified perspective on what's going on here. There's at least three different ways of understanding what's going on in this chapter, especially with regard to the thousand years, the issue of the millennium, and what that means. But I think it's important not to get too um, caught up, especially here in, in this worship service, over all the differences that we might have over what certain things mean and miss the bigger point of the chapter, which is there are certain things that are going to happen that all Christians agree All Christians agree on the return of Christ. All Christians agree that there is a a judgment to come. All Christians agree that the only way you can be prepared for that judgment is if Jesus is your Lord and Savior. And so there are certain things that all of us can agree on, even if we might have uh, in-house friendly debates on exactly what these things picture. And therefore, there are a couple of different quotes um, that I'd like to remind you of. One that I've shared, I think, last week and one that I've shared in the past. I think helped me in just making sure that I frame the discussion appropriately. I mentioned last week that Charles Spurgeon said, The preciousness of mercy is best known by those who discern the terror of justice. The preciousness of mercy is best known by those who discern the terror of justice. We can't truly understand what we've been saved from and how great God's mercy is to us as believers in Jesus unless we really understand a little bit about the terror of justice, of actually receiving what we deserve. And that's what this chapter is talking about. Uh, Martin Luther, which is, this is the second quote, Martin Luther said, there are two days in my calendar. This day and that day. Now, all of us have things planned probably for today. All of us have calendars of some kind probably where we're planning 
for certain things, preparing for certain things. The question is, in all of our planning, are we planning on that day? And all of our doing on this day, is it influenced and shaped by that day? And what day is that? It's the day of the Lord that the Bible talks about that involves the return of Christ and the judgment that is to come and standing before Christ. And so ultimately, uh, this passage, like all the Bible, is meant to point us to Jesus as an able and willing Savior for sinners. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And that's what this passage is meant to do. As we saw last week, all prophecy is ultimately pointing to Jesus. And so I hope we can worship together this morning and listen to this passage in light of that and find some encouragement through it, through it in various ways. I, I pray it won't be uh, like um, experience I had and a lot of people have had in teaching on the book of Revelation. When I was in that little country church in Louisiana, I taught some things that they weren't familiar with. I, I talked about believing that there was a, a, a judgment in which both believers and unbelievers appear at the same time before Christ. And there was an older lady in the congregation who never heard that before. She had heard that there was a, the uh, judgment seat of Christ, and then there was a great white phone judgment. Believers go to the judgment seat of Christ. Unbelievers go to the great white phone judgment. And when I argued that those were actually the same event, uh, she was really upset at me. And that's very common, is that we can very easily get upset at each other over the details and trying to work things out and figure out how they all fit together. And yet, one of the things the Bible tells us is that I prepare for that judgment in whatever form it takes by actually loving people that I disagree with. And so the best way to handle our disagreements is to remember that this day ought to be shaped by that day, regardless of what our position on these things might be. And so um, let's go ahead and look at this passage. It's, it's one of those fascinating passages. I, when I was growing up, the book of Revelation was my favorite book because it told me about the future and it challenged me in terms of uh, how I was living my life today. And so I love the book of Revelation as challenging as it is. And it is ultimately a revelation of Jesus. And that's why we should love the book as well. That's how it starts out. A revelation of Jesus Christ or the revelation of Jesus Christ in Revelation 1.1. Well, look, if you will, first of all, in uh, the very beginning of the chapter, verses 1 through 3. Um, one of the things that um, there are disagreements over is what does it mean when it's talking about the thousand years? Because in verses 1 through 3, it talks about an angel who has a key and he has a chain. And he comes down from heaven and he takes that chain and he chains the dragon and he obviously opens the abyss with the key puts the dragon in the abyss and seals it over him. And it says that he would be uh, chained up and bound for a thousand years. We have to remember that the book of uh, Revelation is a picture book. It's the picture book of Jesus. Like little kids have picture, picture books, this is a picture book in the sense that what we find in it are 
figurative ways of talking about uh, true realities. The devil is not a dragon, but he's referred to as a dragon. To picture for us something that is powerful and dreaded. People thought about dragons as fearful things. They didn't go see movies about how to train your dragon. Uh, Dragons were not safe things. In our day and time, we've kind of transferred the, or transformed the image. But this is a picture of actually something that uh, happened. And the question is, what is the thousand years all about? Well, it's about the reign of Christ because obviously it talks about um, the reign of Christ as we read the whole passage. It talks about a reign that's taking place. And um, some people see that reign as a thousand-year golden age that happens after Christ comes back, which is called the premillennial view that says Christ will come back to earth, then there will be a thousand years, and most people would say a literal thousand years, where Christ will reign on earth over unbelievers and believers. There's also another view that says it's also a thousand-year golden age that happens actually before Christ comes back. And it's going to be a a thousand years that may be literal or just figurative in which the world is going to become basically Christianized. And that's another view of a thousand years. Then the third view is that it's not a golden age, either after the return of Christ or before the return of Christ of some kind, but it's a thousand year figurative gospel age. So not a golden age, but a gospel age. It actually refers to the time between the ascension of Christ to heaven, to take his throne in heaven. Uh, And it goes until just before Christ returns at the end of time. And so one of the things that helps me in trying to understand what's going on here, and my views have changed over the years. I started out in one position when I was growing up in church, and I've gone through different perspectives on this, and that does happen. But one thing that helps me right now is, for instance, in Mark 3, if you'd like to turn there, you're welcome to. In Mark 3, the Lord Jesus talks about binding. And he tells us that um, in order to plunder the strong man, uh, he must be bound. And one of the things that I do in trying to understand Revelation is there is a principle in, in interpreting Scripture that says, obviously, you interpret Scripture by Scripture, but you also interpret the unclear by the clear. And so what does Christ and the apostles clearly teach and how might it be pictured in the book of Revelation is really a starting point for me. And so in Mark chapter 3, you've got... Um, Jesus being criticized for casting out demons. And they're accusing him of casting out the demons by the power of the devil. And he begins to talk about the fact that that would not be a very good strategy for Satan to cast out demons. Because if Satan were casting out himself, uh, his kingdom is not going to stand. The Lord Jesus argues. And so what Jesus says is happening in his ministry is what's really happening here is that the strong man is being bound, being restricted, and his house is being plundered. 
People are being set free from the devil. People are being saved. And that's a picture of this binding of the strong man. In Mark 3, um, 22, it says, The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And he cast out the demons by the ruler of the demons. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. So one way to understand what this picture in Revelation is talking about is talking about something that actually started with the ministry of Jesus and actually continues until right before the return of Christ. Because Christ came to defeat the devil. Christ came to plunder, so to speak, the strong man's house. And the strong man refers ultimately to the devil in this situation. And it's interesting um, the phrase day is an interesting thing in terms of its use in the Bible. It can mean different things. Um, but in the New Testament, it talks about the fact in Second Peter, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. And then Paul could say in Second Corinthians, um, the day of sal- in the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the day of salvation. If you put those two things together, you could very well argue that the day of salvation is the thousand-year reign of Christ from heaven in which he is plundering the devil's house. He's saving people uh, through the proclamation of the gospel. And so um, it's it's the reason why uh, when the 70 returned from um, preaching and teaching and, and casting out demons that they uh, that Jesus said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing will injure you. Jesus says to his disciples, I've given you power over the enemy. And that's what my ministry is all about. It's interesting if you think about that in light of what it says in Matthew 28. It says, Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. What does that have to do with Revelation 20? Well, in Revelation 20, it tells us that Satan is bound. But that does not mean he's locked away in a room somewhere and isn't doing anything. It's a picture that we're not supposed to take literal in every sense. But in what sense does it say that he is bound? It says in verses 1 through 3, um, in verse 3, in particular, he says, He threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer. Before Christ came, the nations of the earth were largely pagan. There were very few that came from other nations to worship the true God. The true God was worshipped in Israel. But when Christ came on the scene, 
after he lived and died and rose again, he said, take the gospel to the nations. All authority has been given to me. And you're to make disciples of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So that Satan has been bound through the person and work of Christ that the gospel might be um, effective and that he might no longer um, deceive the nations, but people would be delivered from the deception of Satan. That's one part of it. The other part of it is that he would not be able to gather the nations together to persecute the church and to annihilate the church. And we'll talk more about that in a minute because that's the context of the binding, that it's preventing Satan from preventing the progress of the gospel and from preventing, uh, and it's also preventing Satan, Satan from gathering together the nations to actually annihilate the church. Like I said, we'll talk about that more in just a second. But so what's the application? I mean, if you just think about that, if that's, if that's the right way to understand it, then it's, tr- it's meant to encourage us to say, you might look at some people in your life and you might look at them like the, the dead bones in Ezekiel 37. Remember that picture in Ezekiel 37? Uh, I've got dead bones all over the ground. And God speaks to Ezekiel and says, Ezekiel, can these bones live? And as it goes on, you say he finds out, yes, they can live. And they live as Ezekiel speaks what God tells him to speak. And those bones come together. And flesh comes on those bones. And skin comes on that flesh. And they stand up. And they begin to live. And that's a picture of what God was going to do in Israel and beyond Israel. He was going to raise people from the dead. And the encouraging thing is that that's what God is doing. This is the gospel age where God is raising people from the dead. And the people that you think will never come to Christ is changing lives. And so the encouraging thing is for us to believe that all authority has been given to Christ and that Satan has been bound, that people might actually believe and might be saved because Jesus on the cross says in Revelation 5, 9, purchased for God with his blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And we are to go and tell the gospel that they might be saved. Well, the second part of this chapter, and I'll have to move on because I'm going to run out of time. There's so much in this chapter. But if you look, secondly, in verses 4 through 6, we see more of an explanation of what's going on here. Um, one of the things that's... Um, a real hot topic right now in the Christian church is the question of uh, whether things are going to get better or worse. And you may have heard talk about Christian nationalism and talk about mere Christendom and things like that. Well, that's all about what's in Revelation 20 and how to understand Revelation 20 and whether or not we should expect that the world, including our own nation, even though we're going through a rough spot now, whether or not it's actually going to become Christian one in one sense or another, if that is going to take place. That's part of the debate that's going on. How should we look at what God is going to do in the future? Well, in verses 4 through 6, it says there were thrones, and it appears that these thrones are in heaven because they are filled with souls. 
not bodies, but souls of those who've been beheaded, souls of those who did not worship the beast. It appears that these thrones are actually filled with the souls of those who have died. And yet it says that they have uh, come to life to reign with Christ, and they participated in what has been called here in this passage the first resurrection. It's interesting in Ephesians chapter 2, it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, obviously, in Ephesians 2, Paul is not talking about a physical resurrection. When he says God has raised us up, he's talking about a spiritual resurrection. And that's one way that this could be understood is that the resurrection that's being talked about when he talks about the first resurrection is the fact that believers have died, maybe even through being beheaded, but they've been raised to heaven to reign with Christ as they wait on the bodily resurrection and the return of Christ. Part of the reason why people see the thousand-year reign of Christ in this passage as being something that takes place with Christ in heaven and not on earth is because of what um, Jesus said in John 18. If you want to turn there in John 18, verses 33 through 38, Uh, Jesus is standing before Pilate, just before he's going to be crucified. And Pilate begins asking questions of Jesus. And obviously he's asking questions of Jesus because he's heard that he's supposedly the king of the Jews. And so in John 18, verse 33, it says, Therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And so Pilate asked Jesus, are you a king? And Jesus says, yes, I am. And the Bible says that the kingdom of Christ is right now. It's actually what we sang about Earlier, And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, which implies that his kingdom, if he's a king, he does have a kingdom, but he says it's not of this world. So in what sense is he ruling and reigning? And one way to understand that is that he reigns from heaven until he returns. So what is the implication of that? Well, one of the things that um, is being talked about today in terms of what's going on in our country is that there are Christians who are arguing that we need to be firm in acknowledging who really is king, who really is in charge. 
of things. And one of the things that got the Christians in trouble uh, in the first century wasn't that they were preaching salvation through Jesus. There are plenty of other religions that in some sense proclaim some kind of salvation. What got them in trouble uh, was the fact that they were claiming that Jesus was king. And that's why you find in Acts chapter 17, it talks about what happened when the Jews were persecuting the Christians and the Jewish um, uh, people uh, were causing people, Gentiles as well, to begin persecuting the, the Christians. And they were shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And so what got the early Christians in trouble most of the time, especially with regard to the Romans and these more secular authorities, was that they were actually claiming that Jesus is king and our allegiance is to Jesus first. And if that means I'm not going to obey you, Caesar, then I won't obey you. Um, human authority that isn't submitted to Christ is not going to allow not going to like the idea that there are people that have another king. And so what we have to do is we have to be like Joab in 1 Chronicles 9, where he's about to enter this battle where uh, it looks kind of bleak in the sense that there are large armies that he's having to face as he leads the army of Israel. And what he says is, be strong and courageous. And let's do what we need to do for... Uh, our people, and for our God. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. I'm not of the opinion that some are that um, this nation is going to become a Christian nation or that the world is going to become Christianized. I'm not of that opinion. It's okay with me if it happens. I could be wrong. And I'm okay with that. But I do believe that it's uncertain just what God might do before Christ comes back in terms of how many he will save, how much society will be affected. And we're simply to proclaim salvation through Jesus and the kingship of Jesus and let God do what God's going to do. That's what we need to do. We need to be faithful to King Jesus, both in terms of obedience and proclaiming the truth of the gospel. Look look ahead to verses 7 through 10. Um, The next section talks about what happens after Satan is released. So you've got in the first few verses it talking about Satan being bound. And then what happens um, after he's bound. And now what happens when he's released. Because it says in verse 3 that he would be Release. And so it says in verse 7, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released. And he will come out to do what? To deceive the nations. And deceive them in order to do what? It says to gather them together for the war. Which is a reference to what we typically understand as the battle of Armageddon. The, the last battle. And so it talks about uh, the nations surrounding the camp of the saints and the beloved city, which again is a picture of what's going to happen. And yet, fire comes down from heaven 
and the devil is thrown into the lake of fire. Um, Even those who believe that things are going to get much better before Christ returns, most of them believe that there's going to be a final rebellion before Christ comes back. And so even if you have different ideas of what might happen, most people would say, this is going to happen. There's going to be a point in which Satan is released to deceive the world. And the Antichrist is going to receive the worship of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And he is going to fight with the saints and overcome them, the Bible says. And that's what it says, for instance, in Revelation 13, speaking of the beast or the Antichrist, it was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. If you read on in Revelation 16, it says, I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons performing signs, which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God. And then it goes on to say they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon or Armageddon, as we are most uh, familiar with. Right before Revelation 20 and Revelation 19, 19, it says, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth in their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army, which is a picture of Jesus in his return. So what is going on here? Satan is bound and Satan is released. If you turn to Second Thessalonians 2, I think this is what's being pictured in Revelation for us. In Second Thessalonians 2, we find a discussion of the great apostasy and the rise of the man of lawlessness. And it's all in the context of there's going to be this person who's empowered by Satan and all the world is going to worship him as God. It's the man of lawlessness. And the great apostasy has to do with the world worshiping this man of lawlessness. And it says that that will happen. This Antichrist will arise. The world will worship Satan by worshiping him. And then a great persecution will take place on the people of God. In verse 6 of Second Thessalonians 2, it says, And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so, until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness, for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence, so that they will believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. So when Paul talks about a restraint being lifted, so that the world worships a man who claims to be God, and they support the persecution of Christians, I believe that's exactly what Paul uh, John is talking about in Revelation chapter 20. 
you actually see, I think, something similar talked about in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1 when it says, Now at that time Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. So what you have pictured here, I believe, is God removes the restraint that he has provided in restraining Satan so that he cannot deceive the nation, so that they will not try to annihilate the church. He will remove that restraint. Uh, Satan, through the Antichrist and the worship of the Antichrist, will seek to dis- to annihilate every believer, and it will be what the Bible calls the Great Tribulation. And that's why it says in the end, Jesus said in Matthew 24, they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And it says, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And so uh, Jesus even asked the question, um, in talking about praying and not growing weary in praying, he says, um, he told them a parable at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. And then he says at the end of the parable, now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Why would Jesus ask a question like, will Will I find faith on the earth? Why? Because Satan through the Antichrist will seek to annihilate the church at the very end. But Christ will return like the Calvary in the old movies to rescue his people. He will return. And that's why it says in Matthew 24, immediately after the tribulation of those days, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky and they will gather together his elect. If you read in the first um, chapter of 2 Thessalonians, in verse 6 it says, It is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. And the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. You notice it talks about the fact that he will come with his angels in flaming fire. In Revelation 20, it talks about fire from heaven, destroying the enemies of the church. Gog and Magog in Revelation 20 is actually a reference to the Old Testament, where it talks about the enemies of God attacking Israel. And God, in that passage, if you look in Ezekiel 38 and 37 and 38, God actually rains down fiery judgment on Gog and Magog as they seek to destroy the people of God. 
we had more time, we could read other passages like Psalm 18, where the psalmist says, I love the Lord, my strength, because he delivers me from my enemies. He says, in my distress, I called upon the Lord. And in that psalm, which is a long psalm, it talks about, in figurative language, God getting angry and rising up to defend his man in that situation, his people, and him coming in judgment to rescue his people from those who would hurt them. And so I believe that's what we have pictured in Revelation 20 as a picture of the return of Christ where he comes not to a world that's Christianized, but obviously at at that point, a world that's in profound rebellion against him. And he comes to deliver his people. And instead of Satan winning the victory, he is thrown into a just place of punishment. So what's the application for us? I don't know how long it's it's going to be before Christ returns. But it, what one thing I think is clear is that to one degree or another, God's people are always going to be persecuted. And we need to be prepared for that persecution. And at some point, that persecution is going to be unprecedented. It's going to be profound. It's going to be worldwide. And that's why Jesus could say things like what we find in Luke 21, the end of the chapter, be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that day, Martin Luther referenced, and that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. But keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man." It is relatively easy to be a Christian in our country now. It's becoming more difficult, but it's still relatively easy compared to other places. But at some point when they begin knocking on our doors, because we believe in Christ, and they begin throwing us into prison, and they begin torturing us, and they begin putting us to death, we will need the grace of God to be faithful. And that's why Jesus says, pray strength. He talks about the return. He talks about the persecution. And he says, be on your guard. Don't be so caught up in your everyday life that you're not preparing for that day, like Martin Luther talked about. And pray for grace to be faithful, whatever the persecution and opposition might be. Let me go on to the last section here. And we'll talk more about this next week, Lord willing. You know what? When you think about the fallout in our society, the fallout of a society that says there is no God is that there's there are people that think that they were not created with a purpose. There are people that think that there is no standard of right and wrong. There are people who think there is no life after death. And there are people that think there's no accountability for our lives. And therefore, people live like they want to live and they do what they want to do and they don't prepare for what we see in verses 11 through 15, which is the great white throne judgment. And so what we see here is a picture of Christ on the throne because the Bible says God will judge every man through the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is on the throne judging and books are being opened. What books are those? It's a record of everything we've said and done. It's a record of our lives. Every single person 
has a ledger, has a book where everything that we've said and done is being recorded. And the Bible says that we will be judged according to our deeds. But there's another book there. And that book is the book that actually determines how those other books are handled. The book of life. The book of life has in it written everyone who has believed in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And we find out from the book of Revelation that that book was actually filled out before the foundation of the world. But everyone who has believed in Jesus as their Lord and Savior will be in that book. And God will handle the judgment of their actions by looking through that book, the book of life. And he will forgive their every sin and he will graciously reward their imperfect obedience. But, but for those who are not in that book, that book does not come into play. And they are simply given justice. Those in the book receive mercy. Those outside the book receive justice. Not injustice. Not non-justice, but justice. And that's what's being pictured here in this passage. And it doesn't say people are judged for the, the sin of Adam or that they're judged for other people's sins. They're judged for their own deeds. They're judged for their personal responsibility for being in rebellion to a holy God and refusing the mercy that is in Jesus. And then you have the picture of those whose names are not written in the book of life being cast into the lake of fire. And if there's anything that that strikes fear into most people's hearts, it's the idea of, fire and yet this is just a picture and it's a picture of something that's terrifying and why would God give us a terrifying picture number one because it's true it will happen number two it's a warning that we might escape it that's what the book of life is all about it's about escaping the lake of fire not through our own good deeds but through Jesus who is an able and willing Savior for us. And so I remember early on in my Christian life reading in the book of Amos where it talks about um, preparing to meet God. And that phrase stuck with me as a young person. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. And it caused me to ask the question, am I prepared? Am I prepared to meet the God who created me? Am I prepared to meet the God who has a standard of right and wrong? Am I truly prepared? It's one of the things that's so disturbing about the way we are naturally as sinners. In Romans 3 it says, there's no fear of God before their eyes. Before we become Christians and before we see what is true, we live our lives as if there is no God or if there is a God, he's not going to hold me accountable. You know, I don't have nothing to be afraid of. He's just a big teddy bear in the sky who's just there for me to ask if I need something. And so in our sinful state, before we come to see the truth, we don't truly fear God. Because if we did, we'd run to the only source of rescue, and that's the person and work of Jesus. Finally, it says in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 11, Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, 
to be pleasing to him, whether in, uh, on earth or in heaven is what he's talking about, being pleasing to God. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That's one reason why I think it's both believers and unbelievers at the judgment will be judged and recompensed based on what we've done, whether good or bad. And that's also the basis for what he says next when he says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. Believers don't have any reason to be afraid of God in the sense of terrified of God. That has been taken away because of Christ and what he's done for us. But Paul says, knowing the fear of the Lord, that people who don't have Christ should be very afraid because of what it says in Revelation 20. And therefore, we seek to persuade men, he says. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men that they might be rescued, that they might be saved, that they might be forgiven. So just going back to what I began with as I wrap up this morning, the preciousness of mercy is best known by those who discern the terror of justice. The great right throne judgment is the terror of justice. But in the midst of that great white throne, just judgment is a book of life. And it's the Lamb's book of life, it says in Revelation 22. Therefore, the preciousness of mercy is best known by those who recognize that Christ is an able and willing Savior for real sinners people who really deserve that kind of justice. And therefore, as Christians, we need to live our lives in light of that day. This day ought to be shaped by that day, believing that my life will be evaluated. Because of Christ, I will be forgiven, but I will be rewarded based on my faithfulness. And I should desire to be as happy as I can be, Jonathan Edwards said, in the life to come. And the way that I live to be as happy as I can be in the life to come is by grace seeking to be as faithful as I can be in this life. Let's pray. Father, so much in this passage, and we just touched on it so briefly, but I pray that you'd help us not to miss the the themes that are so important and the major truth that you want us to get, which is there are difficult days to come for your church and we need to be prepared for that. But the most challenging thing will be when all of us stand before you and give an account of our lives. And we pray, Father, that anyone here this morning who is not prepared they don't have a mediator, they don't have a savior to deliver them from the guilt of their sin, we pray that they would see that Jesus is that savior, that he's an able and willing savior for sinners, an able and willing savior for them. Please grant them grace to turn from their sin and entrust themselves to you, you Lord Jesus, this very hour. And for those of us who by your grace have done that, please help us to live this day in light of that day, that we might glorify you, that we might testify of the mercy of God in Christ, that we might indeed lay up treasure in heaven. 
We thank you, Father. Please bless this message to the good of our souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.